Welcome to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. We're your hosts, Tim and Ruth Olson, licensed marriage and family therapists and trauma experts. We provide wisdom for personal growth and healthy relationships. Stick with us and you'll gain practical tools and insights that will help you be a healthier and happier you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. Thank you so much for being here with us. Today we're going to be talking about mindset. Our mind is such a powerful thing. We'll be talking about how mindset affects reality. So there's three studies that we're going to highlight. I'm really excited for today's podcast because studies <laughs> are one of my favorite things. Now, I know for a lot of people, that can be boring and make them want to roll their eyes. But sometimes these studies give us a real insight into how the world actually operates and how things affect how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. So the first one that we want to highlight is the brown eye, blue eye study. Now, this is a very famous study. It was a teacher kind of doing a little bit of an experiment on her class where she told one group, the blue-eyed kids are more intelligent than the brown-eyed kids, and then gave them tests and then studied to see how they went. Then the next day, after she had told the blue-eyed students that they were more intelligent, she said, oh, there was a mistake. Actually, what we found out is that the brown-eyed students are more intelligent. And what they did was then they looked at these test results in these just two different days. And what they found is the days that the blue-eyed kids were told they were more intelligent, they performed better on the tests. And then the next day when they found the brown-eyed students were more intelligent, they performed better on the test. So I think the really interesting thing about the study is that clearly in just a 24-hour period, there is no intelligence increasing or decreasing of the brown-eyed or blue-eyed student. But what was changing was just their belief system about what they were capable of. And that dramatically affected how they performed. So the major takeaway from the study for me is that what our beliefs are affect how we behave. And if you think you're more intelligent, you're going to think harder when you're taking the test. If you feel like or believe that you are less capable, you're going to spend less time trying to figure it out because you just don't believe that you can or you have the ability to. So I think when we're talking about mental health also, if you don't believe you have the capability of being happy or you don't believe that there's anything that you can do to change your emotional state, you're not even going to try because you don't believe that you can. The inverse is also true. If you believe I can really change the way that I'm feeling right now, if I put in the work and the effort, then you're more likely to find solutions that cause you to change the state of your mental health. So if you've ever heard of the self-fulfilling prophecy, then those results won't come as a surprise because it's basically the idea of self-fulfilling prophecy. So this idea comes from Robert Merton. He is a sociologist and psychologist, and his definition of self-fulfilling prophecy is a false definition of the situation evoking a new behavior which makes the originally false conception come true. What does that even mean? Basically, the self-fulfilling prophecy is this idea that you go into a situation and you have this idea of the situation. So you begin to behave in a way that makes that original thought happen, even though it may not have happened that way. So for example, say a high school girl walks into a room and she sees a group of girls together and immediately she thinks, oh my gosh, they don't like me. They're talking about me. So she begins to behave in a way responding to that false thought or that false belief. And so maybe she looks over that at them and gives them dirty looks, or maybe she just totally ignores them. Either way, her behavior then causes her original belief to come true. So because she's ignoring them or giving them dirty looks, they end up not talking to her. And then she, in her mind, is thinking, see, I knew they didn't like me. So it kind of connects to this idea because your mind really is 
a powerful thing and it can create these situations that change our behavior and then change the situation. Yeah, it's really interesting. I saw this guy, he was a military vet, and he was talking about his PTSD. And somebody was asking him this question, well, hey, are you reaching out? Are you trying to get any help for this? And he had a very heartbreaking response. He said, I'm smart enough to know that nobody can help me with this. And that was heartbreaking for me because I was like, oh, with that belief system, he's never going to do anything to try to make his situation better. And now I know he's just kind of setting himself up to keep being in a emotionally difficult place and that he's not going to take any steps to try to rectify that or get himself into a better spot. And that's so tough because there's so many different things that he could be doing. But before he even starts, he doesn't have any hope. And he's developed some level of belief system that is causing him then not to go out and seek any assistance. So it's going to, just like Ruth said, it's going to fulfill that prophecy that he had where he said, there's nothing that can be done to help me. So then he's not going to do anything. And then he's not going to get helped. Another study that goes along with what we believe and how it affects us is the smart versus hardworking study. Now, this is a very interesting one because what's happening is you're giving two different groups of people both positive labels, but then you're going to get two different results from these different groups. So in the other one, the brown eye versus blue eye study, you're giving two groups of people, one a positive label and then the other one a negative label. But in this study, they gave both groups positive labels, but they had different results. So what they did in this experiment was they told two groups of students, one group they said, you are the smart kids. The other group, they said, you are the hardworking kids. And then what they did is they kept giving the kids progressively more difficult tests to take. And when they were taking these tests, they got to choose whether or not they would take the next one. And what happened was the kids who were, quote unquote, the smart kids, they would take the test up till a certain point, And then they started to opt out and say, I don't, I don't want to take it. Versus the kids who were the quote unquote hardworking kids, they continued to take the more progressively hard tests and they never gave up or they were less likely to give up when they were taking these tests. Now, the very interesting thing is because why did one group press on versus the other group give up? And what they ended up finding out was that the one group that gave up, the smart kids, they gave up because they started to feel like if I keep taking these tests, I'm going to lose my label of being a smart kid. Because if I take the test and I can't get the right answers, then I'm not the smart kid anymore. Versus the other group of kids, they could only lose their title as being a hard worker if they stopped working hard. So the interesting thing is the labels, even though they are both good, had different results that came about from engaging into the similar task. And I definitely know, and I think if you think in your life, you guys probably can think of people who you knew were just very intelligent people, but then for some reason they just didn't try in school or they didn't progress forward to get maybe a higher level of education or anything like that, even though they were very capable of it. And I think the study rings true where it's like they don't want to keep doing these tests or they don't want to put in the work into class because they're afraid to lose that title of being intelligent because if they don't try, then they have the excuse, at least in their mind, well, I didn't even try, so of course I got bad grades, versus if they tried hard and then they got bad grades, then they would lose that title of being the smart kid. So this really has a lot to do with locus of control. Where does your locus of control come from? 
Children who are praised for being smart activates kind of this external locus of control where they don't believe they can choose how smart they are. They just think it's kind of this innate capacity that I'm just smart. There's nothing I can do or nothing I have to do to change that. Whereas praising a child for their hard work or their effort, it activates the internal locus of control where they realize that they're in charge and have control over what they decide to do. They can decide to work hard or they can decide to not work hard. And the benefits or the consequences are there, but it's totally in their control. So it's this internal locus of control. And that's a very cool concept. You want to begin to teach that concept to children in reference to emotions, that they control their emotions. It's not the other people outside. Yes, they did something, but you are in control of that anger. So that external versus internal locus of control is really important to teach them. So I think one of the things that's very interesting about this is, so we have five kids and Obviously, they're all very different from each other, right? Some are a little more reserved. Some are a little bit more outgoing. And what happens is when Ruth and I sometimes will just be chatting and we'll be talking about our kids. We'll be talking about, oh, they're good at this. Oh, this one's good at this kind of a thing. But our kids are always in the background listening somewhere. So if we're driving and Ruth and I are trying to have, you know, a private adult conversation up in the front seat, well, we always know at the very least our oldest is 100% ears on all the time. She's always listening to what we have to say. So for some context, our third child, Elizabeth, is very outgoing, just doesn't meet strangers, is absolutely 100% fine just walking up to people and starting to talk to them. And our oldest daughter, Hannah, is a little more on the reserve side. She's a little more introverted. And then Elizabeth is definitely very high on the extroverted scale. So we are at this park one day. Our son is at soccer practice. And the other kids are just kind of running around having a good time. And Elizabeth sees a girl that's about her age, maybe a little bit younger, and she just walks up to her and grabs her hand and says, we're going to be friends, and then just kind of trots off with her, and then they go and they play and they have a great time. Now, our older daughter, Hannah, is a little more on the reserve side. It's a little more difficult for her to just go up to people that she doesn't know and start a conversation. Now, having two therapist parents, right, we talk about our kids' personality types all the time. And she's definitely overheard us at times talking about how she's more introverted and how Elizabeth is more extroverted. So these are things that we're not telling her, but that she has just overheard. And she kind of has adopted parts of those as a part of her identity. And what happens is we can use that as an excuse to then not go and meet people if we're more on the introverted side. So it's like, well, I'm just nervous or I'm introverted or I'm shy, as opposed to, well, that tends to be the bent that I have. I'm slanted towards introversion or I'm slanted towards extroversion but that doesn't mean that I have to behave that way. So one day Elizabeth came up and she was like I'm the friendly one right and we are kind of talking to our children and I said you're all very friendly and you all have the ability to be friendly but you enjoy going out there and you practice that a lot and you like to take every opportunity you have to find a friend and so Hannah heard that and I think she realized that I'm in control of this. I can practice this and I can get better. So a lot of times if we go out and she sees someone her age or we'll go to a playground or we'll be at a store and she sees someone her age, I can tell that she kind of wants to talk to them. So I tell her, hey, do you want to practice? And she'll say yes. So I tell her to go over there and talk to them. But I don't just send her in blind. I give her scripts and things that they can talk about. And this is a really good thing to train your kids on. And we'll talk about this maybe at a later time, just different scripts that you can use for them. 
But lately we've been talking a lot about how can you start conversations? What can you say to people? So I told her to go talk to her and ask her her age or what her favorite color is. And so she went and she tried it and then she came back just beaming and she was so excited. And we've done this several times. And each time she does it, she begins to get prouder and prouder of herself and recognizes that she really is in control of this. And she can either seize an opportunity or she can let it pass by. It's also okay for times where she's maybe not in that space and doesn't want to not do that. So it's been really encouraging to watch her grow in this and watch her benefit from really stepping out of her comfort zone and seeing that she can do these things. That it's not a matter of this is who Elizabeth is, that she is friendly, but it's something that she can practice and that she can choose to be as well. There is a really great quote that I like, and it's kind of from an unlikely source. It's from a workout video I used to do with this guy (laughs) named Tony Horton. And he always said, don't say I can't. He's talking about doing pull-ups. Don't say you can't do pull-ups. Say, I currently struggle with. And when you're saying something along those lines, it gives you hope that things could be different. And so for you, if you're more on the introverted side, or even if you feel like you're socially awkward, don't say, well, I'm just socially awkward. Say, I currently struggle with being comfortable in social situations because you're giving yourself the out that it doesn't always have to be that way. And so then it gives your brain the opportunity to expand to try to do things that you normally wouldn't do if you're telling yourself, I can't do this thing. You can also say, I'm currently working on this, or I'm currently working to improve this. So the interesting thing about these first two studies is they're talking about our belief systems and how they affect our behavior and kind of how we think. Now, this next study is interesting because it kind of challenges the idea that we even have to believe something for it to change our behavior. There's a research study that they did on people who have cancer, and they follow people who have this mindset and this idea that I'm going to survive. And then there's the other side, people who believe they're going to die from having cancer. What they found was very interesting is that the people who believe they were going to live were more likely to live. Now, your belief doesn't make you live or not, but it made it more likely they had a higher statistical probability of surviving their cancer than their counterparts who believed that they were going to pass away from it. There was a third group in the study that was insanely interesting to me. This third group in the study was people who believed they were going to die, but said they were going to survive. Those people who believed in their mind, I'm going to die, but said out loud, I'm going to survive, had the same statistical probability as people who believed they were going to live. So the interesting thing is that the way we talk, what we say is either affecting our behavior or then possibly even affects our belief later on. Even if you don't believe something is true, you starting to talk about that thing being true about you can actually make it true. There's a very interesting thing that happened to me. I was going to job interviews and I hated doing job interviews. I'm a little more on the introverted side. And so going out there, talking to people I don't know just does not sound like a very fun prospect to me at all. But then one day I had really what I would say is probably a mediocre interview. But then after that, I was telling people, oh, I'm really good at interviews. I feel so confident, all that kind of thing. After I started saying that, I literally never once had another bad job interview. Even though realistically, that interview that I had, that I was so hyped on, it really wasn't that good of an interview, but it was so much better than my interviews I had done previously. But I could have just said, oh, I did, I did a better interview, but I was so jazzed and so excited. I just started talking about how good of an interview it was. And then after that, I really started to do very good interviews. And now comparing those much better interviews to that initial one, 
it really wasn't that good. But that belief system, that stating I'm good at interviews caused me to feel more confident and behave more confidently in interviews and then do much better in that interview. So it's one of these things where it's very interesting where if you think you're struggling with something, start talking about how you're getting better or you're overcoming that. Or you can even start saying you are better even if you're not yet. And it will affect the disposition and the place you're at and cause it to be more likely to move to a better place. So Stanford has a couple of really great articles on this idea of the will to live. And this new field of scientific study called psychoneuroimmunology, it focuses on the effect that mental and emotional activity have on the physical well-being. What that shows is that same idea of the internal locus of control, where you as a patient can play a much larger role in their recovery. And so like Tim says, it doesn't cure cancer. It doesn't change the facts of things. But there is something to say about that mind-body connection and how powerful that is. So one thing you'll hear a lot around our house is us telling the kids, your mind is a powerful thing. And it's just a simple reminder for them without judgment that they get to choose, right? If they're having a bad attitude, I just remind them your mind is a powerful thing. And we talk about that your mind can make things more enjoyable or it can make it really hard to go through like workouts, your mindset on that, or when we're doing homework, your mindset and your attitude on that. Your mind is a powerful thing. So if I were to encapsulate what we're saying in this episode is that your belief systems and what you say play a large role in the direction your life goes. If your belief systems aren't where you want them to be, start talking about them as though they are there now. And then eventually your mind will catch up to you and start believing those things and your behaviors will follow after that. And then you'll start getting those changes and those shifts. But the first most easy place to start off is just saying what you want to be your new reality. Obviously, there's more work in it than that. But that's the very first step that you can take to sending yourself in a new, more desirable direction. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Mr. and Mrs. Therapy. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it helpful, we'd love for you to take some time and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. If you have a question or a topic you'd like discussed in future episodes, visit our Facebook group, Mr. and Mrs. Therapy Podcast, and let us know. Disclaimer, although we are mental health providers, this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide diagnosis or treatment. Please seek professional help if you're struggling with persistent mental health issues, chronic marital issues, or call the National Suicide Hotline at 988 if you are contemplating suicide.